Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to go through the kidney, the, the entirety from the blood flow that reaches the kidney all the way to the end of the collecting ducts in terms of how electrolytes and fluid are absorbed, secreted. So to start, we basically just want to go through the anatomy. I know that throughout our whole undergrad and probably our advanced physiology and patho classes so far in anesthesia school, I feel like we've gone over the renal system like five times. And so this hopefully this first part will be review just the anatomy of it. But we want to kind of review that picture of what it all looks like to flow through the kidney before we go through each different step, just so that we're all on the same page. The first thing that you'll want to think about is the blood flow to the kidney. And specifically, when we're talking about the nephron here, this is going to be the functional unit of your kidney. You will have afferent blood flow that will be going to this nephron. And specifically, this will go to the glomerulus, which will filter a lot of the solutes from the blood. This will be the first area that will have this exchange. Moving past the glomerulus, you'll have your efferent vasculature that will turn into capillaries and will be a site of more reabsorption from the different parts of your nephron. Moving forward from the glomerulus, you have the next step of the nephron is your proximal convoluted tubule. And this is where you're going to have a lot of reabsorption of ions, water, some different nutrients. And then moving down from that, you will have your descending loop of Henle. This is going to be where you have a lot of uh, water reabsorption. And again, we'll talk about specifics of all of these things later in this discussion. I just want to get a brief overview of the anatomy. After the descending loop of Henle, you have your ascending loop of Henle. This will be where you reabsorb mainly sodium and chloride. You have your distal tubule. One thing to note about the distal tubule is that this will actually go back up close to the glomerulus, which will have some effects for regulation. And again, we'll talk about that here in a second. And then lastly, you have your collecting duct, which is another area of reabsorption. This is another site that will manipulate when we are giving some of our diuretics. And then finally, you have excretion. So start to finish, you have glomerulus, proximal, cuboid tubule, descending loop of Henle, ascending loop of Henle, distal tubule, and then your collecting duct. Awesome. So we want to break this down into two pathways. You're going to have your blood flow system and then your tubular system. So the tubular system is anything that gets filtered out of the glomerulus into that proximal tubule and then down through the loop of Henle back up into the distal tubule into the collecting duct. So when we say tubular system, we're talking about the fluid inside that system itself. And then at the beginning here, we're going to talk about the actual blood flow. And what we're going to talk about with that is the blood coming into the glomerulus and then out through that efferent arterial and then into the capillaries that are going to wrap around that tubular system. So to start, let's just go through the, the vascular side of things. So as Tanner said, you're going to have the renal artery that's originally going to come in off the aorta and bring blood supply to the kidney. And that's going to split into a bunch of different branches until it gets down to the small afferent arterioles that are going to run to each nephron. So these afferent arterioles run in to this glomerular sac and all that blood that sits there is basically going to get filtered so that solutes, small particles, and fluid are going to get filtered into that tubular system in the proximal tubule. And the rest of it is going to continue out to the other side of the glomerulus into what's called the efferent arterial. And then as Tanner said, that efferent arterial 
will then flow and turn into this capillary mesh, which we call the paratubular capillary bed. And what that means is it's just the blood flow that's going to go right next to that tubular system. And we're going to have a lot of reabsorption and secretion that we're going to talk about here later in the talk. So that paratubular capillary bed is basically where all the reabsorption and secretion is going to occur. And just so you know, when we talk about filtering fluid, that means all the fluid that filtered from the glomerulus out into the tubular system. When we talk about secretion, that is anything that goes from those paratubular capillary bed networks and goes into the tubular system. So that's secretion, whereas reabsorption is the opposite. It's going to go from the tubular system back out into this paratubular capillary bed. And then anything that reaches the collecting duct and goes out into urine is going to be excreted. So that's the difference between filtering, reabsorption, secretion, and excretion. Awesome. So next, let's talk about the regulation of blood flow. It's important to know, like Cole mentioned earlier, the kidneys get 20% of the cardiac output. And so as such, they're pretty sensitive to your perfusion pressure. And so think about this normal GFR. So this is the filtration rate of the glomerulus. Normal GFR is around 125 milliliters per minute. In order to keep normal GFR, you need to keep systolic around 80 to 180. The more blood flow that goes into the glomerulus and stays there, the more that will be filtered. So this makes sense. I mean, the more fluid or the more blood that you have in the glomerulus, the longer it's able to sit there, the more that you're going to have exchange across from the blood into the glomerulus. So how can we do this? Well, if you dilate the afferent arterial, so the blood going to the glomerulus, more blood flow is able to reach the glomerulus, and then you can have increased filtration. Things that will affect this will be prostaglandins that will cause afferent arterial dilation. NSAIDs will block this process and cause afferent arterial constriction. So this is one of the reasons why you don't want to give NSAIDs to people with kidney problems. Make sure you think about though that thromboxane A2 is the end of the prostaglandin synthesis cascade and that actually causes constriction. So while the prostaglandins will initially cause the dilation, just be cognizant that part of that cascade will also eventually cause constriction. If we constrict the efferent arterial, so this is the blood that's leaving the glomerulus, think about that you're going to have more pressure on the back side of the glomerulus. And so you're going to basically cause more blood to stay in the glomerulus, give it a longer time to filter. And so you'll have an increased GFR. The sympathetic nervous system can stimulate and cause the afferent vasoconstriction, which will reduce blood flow to the glomerulus. So one of the ways that we can increase the efferent arterial constriction is through vasopressin. So keep that in mind. That'll be one thing that we can use that will basically increase the filtration or leave the blood there in the glomerulus longer. So keep in mind the distal tubule wraps back around and comes in close proximity to the Bowman's capsule, which is just the capsule that holds the glomerulus. Often when you look at these diagrams of the nephron, you'll see a really nice, neat picture going from left to right. But in reality, it kind of twists around. The distal tubule comes back around and runs right up against the glomerulus. This is really important because these cells that are butting up against the glomerulus are called the macula densa cells. And this is where we get our renin release from. And so when GFR is decreased, this causes more sodium and chloride to be absorbed from the ascending loop, which causes low sodium and chloride 
at the macula densa cell. So again, that's the distal tubule. When the low sodium and chloride are noted there, then they will actually signal for the afferent arterial to dilate. Again, causes more blood flow and increased GFR. This also causes the macula densa cells to secrete renin, which begins your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and will also be a big player in maintaining your blood pressure. So how this works is it will release the renin from those macula densa cells, which will make angiotensinogen from the liver turn into angiotensin 1. And the long angiotensin 1 makes angiotensin 2, and that's through the angiotensin converting enzyme or ACE. Angiotensin 2 will cause efferent arterial constriction which again causes increased GFR due to the constriction on the efferent side of the glomerulus. In review, renin is released due to low blood flow to the kidney, but also from low sodium or low chloride in the distal tubule. And then you can also get some SNS stimulation of renin and that's through your beta-1 receptors. And so with that whole system of the renin activation, when you get to the angiotensin 2, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it causes multiple effects throughout the kidney. So as Tanner just said, you're going to see that vasodilation of your afferent arterial, but this angiotensin 2 is also going to cause some vasoconstriction of the efferent arterial. So as we talked about earlier, it would make sense then that as we're dilating the afferent side, but constricting the efferent side, it's just going to keep as much blood as possible in that glomerular capsule, which is going to allow it to be filtered into the tubular system. So let's think about here before we move on, what are some situations that are going to cause either dilation or constriction of that incoming afferent vessel? So if I am very hypertensive and I am rushing a ton of blood into my renal system, what do you think my afferent arterial is going to do? Well, it's going to constrict then to limit the amount of blood flow going into that glomerulus to prevent any damage from occurring. So it's going to be able to regulate how much blood flow is brought in, even at high systemic blood pressures. And on the flip side, let's say the patient is very hypovolemic or they have sepsis and they're just very hypotensive. Well, the afferent arterial will then dilate and allow more blood flow to reach that glomerulus to try to compensate for those low systemic blood pressures. So that's why the kidney is able to auto-regulate from what we've seen as low as 80 systolic all the way up to 180. So that's a wonderful thing about the kidney is that it's able to, for the most part, regulate itself at different levels of blood pressure. Next, we want to talk about tubular flow. So tubular flow is, again, as I said, once the fluid from the glomerulus is now put into the proximal tubule, we're now considered tubular flow. And as we talked about before, it's going to go through the proximal tubule, down into the loop of Henle back up into the distal tubule and then to the collecting duct. So let's talk about each one individually here and what's going to happen. When you get into the proximal tubule, this is where you're going to see 65% of your sodium reabsorbed. So remember, reabsorption is anything going from the tubule back into the paratubular capillaries that end up coming from that efferent arterial after it leaves the glomerulus. So anything that's reabsorbed is leaving the tubular space back into the systemic vascular space. So as you can remember, if sodium, 65% of it, is being reabsorbed, water likes to follow solutes, so water is going to follow with it and be reabsorbed, along with other electrolytes. So the system here basically is a co-transporter that when sodium goes across, it also has other things go across. So you're going to have things such as potassium, chloride, etc. Whenever you see sodium going across, are going to go across with it. And then in turn, water is going to follow. But in turn for this, you're going to have hydrogen that's actually going to be secreted. So this is how the kidney gets rid of some of the 
asset in our systemic space is by exchanging it for the sodium and other electrolytes that are being reabsorbed. So in this case, hydrogen is actually going to be secreted in the proximal tubule. Another thing that's important to note here is bicarb is going to be absorbed as well. And so it uses carbonic anhydrase as the enzyme to do that. And we're going to touch on that when we get into diuretics, but that is actually where our carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are going to work. So another thing to note is in the proximal tubule, the glucose and any proteins that did actually get filtered. And remember I said that most big things such as proteins or cells are not going to be filtered, but some small proteins that are filtered are actually going to be reabsorbed in this case completely here, as well as a lot of the glucose as well. So you shouldn't be seeing those in your end urine. And if that is the case, then you probably have a problem with your filtering in the glomerulus, and that's letting proteins and other cells get through where it really shouldn't be. So in review here, the proximal tubule is where 65% of your sodium and other electrolytes are going to be reabsorbed. Water is going to follow with it, and it's an active process, and hydrogen is going to be in turn secreted into the tubule. And this is the spot where bicarb is going to be absorbed using carbonic anhydrase, and we'll get into that here a little bit later. So next, let's move into the loop of Henle. And the goal here is to establish a hyperosmotic state. And basically what I mean by that is that you want an increased solute level. And we'll talk specifically what that looks like. Before we discuss that, it's important that you understand that the vasorecta, which is the blood flow here, is moving in the opposite direction of the fluid within the nephron. This blood flow being opposite of the fluid in the loop of Henle is vital to causing this hyperosmotic state. So what does that look like? I'm going to get ahead of myself just a little bit here, but think about the ascending loop of Henle. So this is further down the nephron. This is where you're going to have a lot of your solute reabsorption. Why this is important is because as the vasorector goes back to the descending loop of Henle, the blood there is going to be really high in concentration. So this is your hyperosmotic state. This is important because then in the descending loop of Henle, you're going to reabsorb a lot of water. So water is going to be going back into your blood flow. The reason for that is because it's trying to dilute all of those solutes that you have reabsorbed in the ascending loop of Henle. So Again, on pictures, you want to go just really simply left to right. But in order to understand the functionality of this segment, you need to understand that what's happening down the nephron, so in the ascending loop of Henle, is really what's causing all of our water reabsorption in the descending loop of Henle. So 20% of the water is absorbed in the descending loop. At the bottom of this loop of Henle, the tubular concentration is going to be its highest, around 1,500 milliosmoles per liter. And this, again, is because you are reabsorbing all of this water on the descending loop. The thick ascending segment of the loop of Henle, again, I kind of got ahead of myself here a little bit, but this is where you're going to have your reabsorption of your sodium, potassium, and your chloride are going to be actively pumped out of the tubule and into the vasorecta. This region is impermeable to water, so it's just the solutes that are moving here. And this is why the filtrate becomes hypotonic. Hydrogen is going to be excreted here in return for the sodium pump. So you'll have your sodium, potassium, chloride being reabsorbed, and then hydrogen will be secreted. Awesome. So in my mind, I feel like the loop of Henle is like the most challenging to understand out of all the parts of the nephron. So I'm going to do like a 20 second review here. 
So as blood flows down into the loop of Henley and back up the other side, think of that picture going left to right. And then flip-flop that, going from right to left, you have the blood flow, which we specifically call the vasorecta, going down where the loop of Henley is going up at, and then loops around, and then flows upwards where the loop of Henley is descending. And so why that's important, because as Tanner said, when the loop of Henley is ascending, only solutes, not water, are able to get reabsorbed from the tubule into that vasorecta. So the vasorecta gets really high in concentration from those solutes, comes around the bottom of the loop of Henle, and then comes in close contact with the descending portion of the loop of Henle. And all the water from the loop of Henle then says, I'm going to go dilute all those really high concentration parts in the vasorecta. And so all the water leaves the descending part of the loop of Henle, which is then why when the loop of Henle comes back around to the ascending side, it now is really high concentrated to be able to flow out into the vasorecta. So hopefully that makes sense. Go look at a picture. It'll make a lot more sense if you look at a picture while we go through that. So now we're reaching, in my mind, the easier section. So you get to the distal tubule. The distal tubule, again, you're going to have more sodium, more potassium, more chloride, all in that co-transport getting pushed across. And I just like to think whenever that's happening, you're going to have hydrogen being secreted as a counter to the sodium, potassium, chloride being reabsorbed. This is going to be the spot of aldosterone, and we'll get into that in a second. Another thing is the parathyroid hormone increases calcium reabsorption here. So we'll talk about parathyroid in a second, but that's what, that's what helps increase your calcium levels. And so specifically, it's working in the distal tubule to reabsorb that calcium. And also your urea concentration is adjusted here as well. Remember that with urea concentration being reabsorbed, high uric acid concentrations are going to be associated with gout. And then lastly, you have your collecting duct, which at this point, you're basically at the very end. You've almost finished your production of urine and you're going to make some last minute tweaks. This is where our ADH works. So our ADH is going to be causing aquaporins to be put into the membrane here, which allows just water to be reabsorbed. It does not allow solutes to be reabsorbed. And that's important because we can completely change the concentration level of the urine at this last minute stage. So basically ADH causes you to reabsorb all that water and concentrate the urine even more, whereas you're, you're going to be diluting your systemic vascular space even more when you reabsorb that water. And again, this is where the last minute hydrogen adjustment is going to play a role. And this is where your atrial natriuretic peptide will work as well. And we're going to go into those here in a little bit. But basically your AMP, your atrial natriuretic peptide is going to inhibit water and sodium reabsorption in the collecting duct. So just know once you get to this point, this is the point where we're making the last minute tweaks and this collecting duct will converge with other collecting ducts from other nephrons as it moves into the renal pelvis and it'll eventually end up in the ureter and flow down to the bladder. Hopefully this has been helpful for you as we just go through the anatomy and physiology of the kidney. For the next episode, we're going to go through diuretics. We'll also talk about the anesthesia management of a patient who has kidney disease and the different considerations there. So stick around for that episode.